continue that on in chapter 3, of course, and then finally get to the gospel. But uh, just to know, again, as we heard this morning and we've heard throughout the liturgies, uh, that God is great, uh, God is righteous. We as human beings are fallen, sinful, and needy. And the remedy to all that is the gift of God's grace, Jesus Christ. Amen? Finally, turning in our Bibles to First uh, Peter. First Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read there verse 3 through 12, and then we'll come to some, uh, we'll come to the catechism questions uh, after that. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, this great opening. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then uh, we're going to hear in the catechism today of the second commandment about images of God and then preaching. So listen up to these verses, verse 8 and following. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets in the Old Testament, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, the Messiah, and the subsequent glories. Notice that suffering and glory I mentioned this morning. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that you have now that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news the gospel to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look and all of god's people say amen uh, and then turning also on that sermon notes page that you should have in the bulletin there uh, three q and a's this, this afternoon uh, from our heidelberg catechism uh, this is a beautiful explanation of the Christian faith. The catechism uses questions and answers. Um, literally, uh, katecheo is uh, this Greek term that means to sound down, and it's uh, the echo that returns. So it's a question and an answer. Sometimes we call it the Socratic method or the catechesis. Uh, so our catechism, written in 1563 in Heidelberg, uh, nowadays Heidelberg, Germany, uh, it gives us uh, a summary of the faith, what we believe, how we are to live. And so we're now in that last and third part of our catechism, dealing with our gratitude. So our guilt, first part, God's grace, second part, and now our gratitude in response to the grace of God uh, towards our guilt. And so question 96, 7, and 8 deal with the second commandment. You shall, uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Question 96. I'll read the question if you would all with me say the answer. What is God's will for us in the second commandment? that we in no way make any image of God, nor worship him in any other way 
than has been commanded in God's word. And then 97, may we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. And then finally, but may not images as books for the unlearned or books for the laity be permitted in churches? No, we should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. So in the first commandment, God says, children, you all know this, don't you? In the first commandment, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And so we are to worship the one true God alone who has revealed himself to us in his word. We heard of that last Sunday afternoon. You shall have no other gods before me. So, children, you are called by God as a Christian, as a believer, as a baptized child of a covenant, to love God and to love the one true God who reveals himself to us in his word, in the Bible, in the Old and New Testaments. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in the heavens above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. This same God, the one true God, whom we are to worship alone, he says that we are to worship him as he reveals himself. So, no other gods before me, first commandment, worship the only true God. And then that same true God says, don't make carved images, don't worship any of these things. In other words, that's his way of saying that we are to worship him as he deserves and desires to be worshipped. We are not to worship God according to our own imaginations. We are to worship God as he reveals and as he wants, as he deserves, and as he desires. He's God. God gets to set the terms of what worship is. He's made everything, and he's made it in a certain way, and then he's made us to serve him, and he calls upon us to serve him, to worship him, to love him as he deserves, as God, as he desires, as our Heavenly Father. And so let's explore the second commandment uh, and what, what that means for us here this afternoon, briefly, uh, from these three questions and answers from the Heidelberg Catechism, and then we'll look at some texts as well um, this afternoon. So the big idea of the second commandment, as I just give you a quick summary of, is this. Don't make images of God, but worship God as he commands. You see that there in the outline. Don't make or worship images. Don't make or worship images. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, in a very lengthy chapter, the Lord says, in summary, through Moses to the Israelites, he says, on the day that I brought you out of Egypt and I brought you to Mount Sinai, you saw no form, therefore make no forms. What, what, what did the Israelites see upon Mount Sinai, children? The Israelites went, they were all surrounding Mount Sinai, and remember Moses and the elders went, they climbed up the mountain, the elders got to the middle of the mountain, they had to stop, and then God told Moses, you go all the way to the top. So the people, the elders, the leaders, Moses. What did they actually see on Mount Sinai? What did they see? 
Well, they saw God, but how do they see God? Well, what, do they, what do they see with their, with their physical eyes? They saw a cloud or the cloud or the smoke. Um, they heard the thunder, right? You can't see, I don't think you can see. Can you see thunder? I don't know. But uh, they heard the thunder and they saw what? The lightning, the fire, right? So they saw all these elemental things. These are all God's ways of condescending and, and showing them something of his glory. And the cloud, so to speak, high, uh, hid God. It, it, it enshrouded God. It, it clouded him, literally. No pun intended. It clouded him. Um, but they saw no form of God. They saw no form of God. Why? Why didn't they see God? So they saw their, with their eyes, they saw cloud, smoke, fire, lightning. They heard thunder. They saw the rocks, of course, the mountain. They saw elders and Moses and so forth. But why couldn't they see God? Well, sure, but can human beings see God? God is a spirit, yes. Emmanuel knows his little kid's catechism. Why can't we see God? God is a spirit. He has no body like men. He does, he's not like us. God is invisible, then we say. Now, we'll, we need to know, of course, that God does become visible in his Son, Jesus. The Son of God, that second person of the Holy Trinity, took upon himself humanity. And so he act, God can actually be seen in Jesus Christ. That's why he said to his disciples, if you, they, say, uh, uh, they, they said to him, show us the Father. And what did Jesus say in return, in return? If you've seen me, you've already seen the Father, right? So, but in Israel, uh, for the Israelites in Mount, Mount Sinai, in the wilderness, they couldn't see God. God's invisible. So God made himself visible in the forms of cloud and fire and smoke and, and lightning and, and so forth. You saw no form. Make no forms. You saw no forms, make no forms. In fact, if, you, if, even, uh, if we as creatures, let alone sinful creatures, could see God with our actual eyes that God has created, we would die in an instant. But you saw no form, and so make no forms. Now, later on in the book of Acts, we saw this in chapter 17, uh, a few months ago, where Paul was preaching there on Mars Hill to the uh, philosophers and uh, and uh, the great thinkers of Athens, and he, and he said to them that they were not to think uh, or even imagine God in terms of the images of created things. He's not made out of stone. I've walked up this mountain, I've seen all these idols, and I even saw one to an unknown God. Don't think of God with your own imagination as an image of stone, metal, steel, wood, uh, 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 silver or gold, don't think of God in any other way than he has revealed himself in his word. Don't imagine God in the images of created things. In fact, Paul tells the Romans, Romans chapter 1, uh, that we as sinful human beings, the problem with us is that we, have, we actually have exchanged the glory of the immortal and invisible creator Exchange that glory for images of mortal, fallible, fallen, visible things. Creeping things, things in the water, things in the air. The heavens themselves bowing down to the stars and, and worshiping the things that God's very own hands have made. So don't make or worship any images. God is pretty clear about that. 
all throughout the Bible, do not make images of God, but worship him as he commands. And so we see the, the principle, the, the negative is don't make images. Every, every, every one of God's commandments always has a negative and a positive. Sometimes it states it negatively. Uh, you shall not uh, make a, yourself a carved image. That's negative. But it implies something, a positive. It implies that you are to worship God as he reveals himself. And we see that. I mentioned there are a couple of passages uh, just for your thought and uh, to go back and read. But uh, Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu. Uh, these were the sons of Aaron, the high priest, and they themselves were priests. Uh, and God, in an instant, wiped out most of the priesthood in an instant. Because they had brought, uh, they brought unauthorized fire, or sometimes it's translated as strange fire. They brought this censer, this, this bowl, and they put in it uh, coals and, and fire, and they, they brought it to God's altar, and they were going to lift this up as, a, as an offering to God and burn some sacrifices on it and burn some incense and so forth to worship God. There's only one problem. That particular fire, sacrifice, altar, and so forth, God never commanded Nadab and Abihu to make that censer, to make that fire, or to offer that stuff in front of him. He, off, he, he, he commanded other offerings. He commanded other sacrifices. He commanded an altar. He commanded a, a golden censer. He commanded a certain fire to be burned and so forth. But that offering he never commanded. And what happened? They, they brought this little, this little censer, this, this, this plate, this bowl, with fire on it to God to offer to God a sacrifice on that fire. And what did God do? How did God, how, how did he slay them? They offered to God a, a fire, but the irony is that God brought fire upon them. They wanted to offer up to God a sacrifice, and God said, fine, I'll take a sacrifice, I'll take your lives. That's how it worked. Why? It seems strange. You know, this, why is God so mean at times? He wanted to teach the Israelites, you, you have to worship me as I command you. You cannot worship in your own imagination. You don't get to dictate to God how he, the creator, is to be worshipped. And so, in an instant, Nadab and Abihu, two-thirds of the priesthood, were wiped out, and they had to start all over again. In, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, there's also a story similar to that, where, where uh, the Lord, through the prophet uh, Nathan, told Saul to go into a certain city with his army and to wipe out every living thing. That's called cherem, which is, which is to devote to destruction. You are to devote everything to me, every living thing, from the king, Agag, all the way down to the lowest little child, in fact, and animals, servants, everything. You are to wipe it all out and burn everything, devote it to destruction to me, as an offering to me. The problem is Saul didn't obey. Saul went in with his army and they wiped out most of the people, but they took the king of the Ammonites, Agog, and they, they took all their gold and silver and all their gods and so forth, and they set it all aside for themselves, and then, and then Saul said, bring it all to me and bring the king with me. We're going to have a one big sacrifice to God. We're going to 
light a huge fire. We're going to build an altar. And we're going to lay on an altar this king. We're going to slay him. And we're going to take all the gold and silver. We're going to melt it down. And we're going to burn those gods and burn those idols. And we're going to be pleasing to God. What's the problem? This is where God, through the prophet, says, it's better to what? Obey than sacrifice. It's better to obey than sacrifice. Obey what? Obey what God said. I've already given the priests. There's already a, a, a tabernacle. There's already offerings and sacrifices. All that stuff is already taken care of, Saul. But I want you to go do this. And he did it somewhat wholeheartedly. But he devised for himself his own kind of worship. And so the Lord said, Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as, as, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen than the fat of rams. It's better to listen to what God says and do what God says and not do what God says not to do than it is to, in ourselves, say, well, you know what? God deserves a sacrifice, doesn't he? God deserves an offering. God deserves some more worship. And I know he's not given the commandment for this, but it's kind of like what he's commanded, and it's going to come from my heart, the depths of my heart and my soul. I'm going to offer it to him. And God says, no, I won't accept it. I won't accept it. And so Jesus, in the fullness of times, comes, the Son of God in human flesh, and he one day in John 4 met a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman, and he told her many things, but one of the things he said was that she was to worship in spirit and truth. We worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and, and you worship over there, Mount, uh, uh, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, there's going to be a day coming, it's already here in fact, where we're not going to worship on this mountain or that mountain, we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And God is seeking such worshipers who to worship him in spirit and in truth, as he commanded, as he deserves, and as he desired. That's, that's, that's the big idea of the second commandment. Okay? That's the big idea of the second commandment. Is to worship, it's not make images, but worship God as he commands. Now, that, that brings us to a little detour question there, uh, question number 97, uh, which is, well, what about art? You know, so are, are, are you saying uh, that we can't make any images of anything at all? Now, the reason why that question was asked in our catechism was because uh, Reformed Protestants in the Reformation, Calvinists, as we're, as we're sometimes called, uh, they were very zealous for this commandment, and they followed uh, uh, the earliest writings of the Church Fathers on not having any images of God. And that looked and sounded very, very different than the Roman Catholic churches in every single city in Europe. Full of stained glass, statues of the Virgin, and so forth. And it sounded like, well, you guys are saying there's zero images of anything. Just whitewash everything. What about arts? Well, the answer tells us that ultimately... Uh, uh, without any qualification, of course, God cannot be portrayed, right? God cannot be portrayed. Everything else can be portrayed, but you just can't worship those images 
that art, those statues, and so forth. Don't worship the, the statue, and don't think that you can worship God through the statue. That's sort of an icon. You can look through the icon of, of a saint or a, of Jesus and worship the heavenly reality through it. We believe in art. Uh, and historically speaking, as a Reformed tradition, uh, and in our particular little sort of slice of that tradition, our little branch of that tree, the Dutch Reformed tradition, uh, you've probably heard of men like Rembrandt. No one's heard of Rembrandt? <laughs> we have the best artists in our tradition, in our history. We believe in art. We believe in expression and so forth. So everything can be imaged. Everything can be uh, shown to be a creation, a beautiful thing of God. And that's why the Dutch masters, that's why they drew and painted pictures of apples. And a husband sitting at a table with his wife. Or a child sitting at his mother's uh, on his mother's knee reading a book because they believe that God created the world and the world is good. And to portray just an apple, that is as holy as portraying the most holiest of the saints in an icon. God has made apples and he's made them good. They're his creations. Portray art all you want. Just don't make images of God. Don't worship the apple and don't think that through the apple you can worship God behind it. No, use art as an expression of creativity to honor God who has made all things. And that brings us to the final, the final thing. The big application of, uh, these, uh, of this commandment, according to our Heidelberg Catechism, uh, is this. And there, there's a couple of great lines there, and just to encourage you as you read that Q&A number 98 again, uh, we're, we're going to be examining our brother Chris Wassum here in the next couple of weeks for uh, the ministry. And uh, this this, uh, this line, I told him, question 98, you've got to memorize this one. You've got to memorize the whole catechism, but you've got to know this question. This is going to get asked you. And you've got to be able to say, we must not try to be wiser than God. It's one of the great Calvinistic answers. You know? We must not try to be wiser than God. He wants the church to be instructed by the living preaching of his word, not by idols that cannot even talk. The big application is that God wants us to, 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 to experience him and to to know him through the living words, through preaching. And what is preaching? I give you there just three little italicized things. Living persons proclaiming a living God and Savior in words made alive by the Holy Spirit. That's what preaching is. Living persons, not icons, not images, not stone or gold. These things, not, not even the best of art, these things are not alive. They're inanimate objects. We know that. The prophets who inquired, and, 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 and as Peter says now, the gospel has been proclaimed in verse number 12 of our text, uh, that he says, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news. Actual living, breathing human persons, human beings, are proclaiming something. That's what preaching is. Living preaching Living persons. Proclaiming what? A living God. A living God and Savior. Living persons proclaiming a living God and Savior. Notice how there, just briefly and quickly, just to note uh, this beautiful thought that Peter says that the ancient prophets, 
as they were prophesying uh, the grace that was to be yours. They're looking forward to the age of the Messiah. But notice, they searched and inquired carefully, diligently, about the person and the time of the prediction that they made. They longed to know when these things would happen. And you can read about that, say, in the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel, he knew that the time was right for the, for the salvation of the Lord because he was reading the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah that those 70 weeks had come, had come up. Their exile was coming to an end, and God was going to send them back to their land. That's just one example. But the prophets longed, and they and inquired, and they diligently searched their own scrolls, and they read other scrolls of other prophets, trying to figure out, you know, who is this figure that's supposed to come, this righteous one, this Messiah figure, and when is he going to come? Living persons were proclaiming a living God and Savior. And we know, ultimately, that that comes to pass in our Lord Jesus Christ, as the beginning of our text tells us, uh, this great God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be praised and honored and blessed because he's caused us to be made alive through the resurrection of the alive Christ. Amen? Preaching is a living person proclaiming a living God and Savior. These aren't just myths and fairy tales and nice little stories and, and nice little morals or, you know, dare to be a Daniel, you know, who are the... Who are the enemies in your life that you could be a Samson-like and so forth? These are not just little moral stories. This is a living God who speaks. A living Savior who's alive. And these living persons before us, these preachers that dare to stand before us, proclaiming a living God and Savior, they do that in words that are made alive of the Holy Spirit. What Paul can say to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2 that when they received Paul's words, they received them not as Paul's words, but as the very words of God. Human words through a human servant, sinful one at that, yet those words are made alive by the Holy Spirit. And, and, we, and, we, and we hear how Peter says to the ancient church, and he says to us that it was revealed to the prophets that they, were ser- that, that they were serving not themselves. So all of their writing of their scrolls and all their longing to know the meaning of those scrolls when those scrolls would be fulfilled, they weren't serving themselves in their own generation. They were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you. In the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection, all the prophets find their fulfillment, he says. But notice how he describes the preachers in the things that have now been announced, proclaimed, that's the, the root word there, preached, proclaimed, to you through those who preach the good news, the gospel. Notice how preachers preach. By the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven. The Holy Spirit was sent from heaven. Acts chapter 2. And that heavenly spirit has now come and he has called certain people to stand up in front of earthly people, but yet as an emissary of heaven and proclaim the gospel. 
And amazingly, he ends that line, verse 12, amazingly for you and for me. Things into which angels long to look. I know that preaching, uh, it's not always the most exciting and the most interesting. It can go overly long. Depends on the preacher, right? Um, But do you realize that the angels, the angels long to look into the things that you believe. The angels long and desire, as it were, to sit where you are sitting. We think, you know, if I could just be an angel in the presence of God, worshiping God for all of eternity, without any sin, without any other thought other than to worship God and to cast down themselves before his throne. Angels long to look into the gospel. Well, if I can just see God, you know, I, I really know that I would be more devoted to him. The angels want to sit next to you right now. They want to know the gospel. They want to know how it is and what it's like to be a sinner saved by grace. They will never know what that means. The angels cannot experience that. They are not the same as you and I. Some fell, some didn't. That's the end of it. The Holy Spirit, though, has been sent from heaven to, pro- to have his gospel proclaimed through earthly vessels with human words, and these are the human words that we take for granted that the angels long to look into. In fact, the verb there, uh, this, this longing to look, uh, this verb to look there, longing to look, uh, it's only used one other time in the entire New Testament. It's used of the disciples Peter and John, they're rushing to the empty tomb in the story. Who gets there first? Remember who got there first? John got there first, right? Probably younger. At least ran faster. We're not really sure, but he got there first. Peter comes up last. And and the text says in the gospel that Peter then stooped down because graves were not in the dirt like ours and this wasn't a massive you know, mausoleum. This was uh, some, some sort of a, a family cave where bodies were buried, the cave of Joseph of Arimathea. And he had to stoop down because the hole was sort of small. He had to kind of crawl down. He, he crawled down. He stooped down low, probably on his hands and knees, to get into the hole and to see, and to see the empty tomb, to see the little uh, stone table that had been carved out of, the, out of the rock, laying there with nothing on it other than the burial clothes. He stooped down to look into the tomb. The angels long to look, to stoop down, to peer into the gospel that you, that you get to hear. And this is why, as Reformed churches, we're so zealous not to have images. It's not because we don't like art. It's not because we don't think that artistic renditions of Jesus for, for children's Bibles might be possibly helpful for them and so forth. It's because... The gospel itself is inherently very visual and very sensible. He's given us the sacraments as well. And it itself should enthrall our imaginations. That just like Peter stooped to look in the empty tomb, and the angels stooped down from eternity into time to see us here singing and hearing the gospel, so too our hearts should be so enraptured with Jesus that we that we are so honored and blessed 
to be, to be the recipients of a heavenly Holy Spirit with a heavenly message to us through, yeah, ordinary human beings like me. But this is the second commandment. This is what God requires of us and calls us to be and to do. To love him according to how he reveals himself in his word and to be content and to know that if God says to you and to me, my word is sufficient, it won't return to me void. My word is like the seed of your soul. It's going to give you life. To trust him. To believe that. Not to add other stuff to it. Do we need to throw rocks at his windows? No. But we have the word. We have the word. Amen? Let's thank the Lord for his word and give him praise and seek to love him more uh, through it as we try to worship him as he commands, as he deserves, and as he desires. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. There's a short series of prayers on the order of service. We'll use those this this afternoon uh, to help us uh, pray. And so uh, to begin with, brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you.